that's the other microphone. I just unmuted it. Oh my goodness. And now I muted the main mic. I'm reminded of that scripture that says, in those days there were giants in the land.
And Satan and the bad angels is reflected in Ezekiel chapter 38, where there the king of Tyre, or the prince of Tyre, as he's called, is compared to Satan, who started out as a good angel, but then became prideful and arrogant and lost his place and was cast down from heaven. What I want you to see is that in this text, Paul already indicates that ultimately the battle that we're going to face, the battle you're going to face, is a spiritual battle. And I want to say that clearly. The battle we face as followers of Jesus, as Christians, it is nothing but a spiritual battle. And if you miss that, you will fight the wrong enemy, you will fight with the wrong weapons, and you will lose the fight. So he just says, everything comes from the Father in this verse. I pray, verse 16, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Just underline that sentence. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do it more to measure it more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, you hear that word now three times? Power that is at work within us to have glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I just want you to see in this text a couple of truths. We face a spiritual battle that's really unprecedented in the United States of America. It's not unprecedented in the world. It, in so many ways, um, it, I'll put it this way, in so many ways, White, white Americans of European descent have, have never really faced serious persecution. That's not true for black Americans. That's not true for a lot of minorities. But for a lot of people who look like I look, for a long time, everything in America pretty much just flowed along with the Christian faith. You know what I'm talking about. Those of you are older. When, when I was growing up, to be a Christian was like to be going down on the down escalator. All you had to do was get on it. Everybody in my school was a Christian of some form or another. Everybody I went to school was. Everybody went to church somewhere. When I was growing up in Middle Tennessee, I said this before, even Flipper was a Christian on the old TV show. Everybody was a Christian. And all you had to do basically was just decide, are you going to be the kind of Christian that uses the piano in church or the kind who doesn't use the piano? That was your decision. Well, you guys know those days are over. There's no indication that they're coming back. Now, to be a Christian in the U.S., you're going to face some serious opposition. Not only do we face the temptations that we always face, but those temptations now are exasperated by technology. I mean, they just are. The average human being today starts looking at porn on a regular basis when they are 11 years old. And they're doing it on the cell phones that we're giving them. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere now. Social media seems to scream out even more loudly about the temptations that already face us. The temptations to be vicious, to be argumentative, to always be picking a fight with somebody. I'm just saying, we've always had temptations, but they seem to be heightened now. And goodness, the last year and a half that we've been through, the racial unrest in the U.S., 
the most cantankerous election in my memory. And COVID. The truth is, coming out of all of that, it's really been difficult. Yes, and you've noticed that. It would be exciting to have a potluck on it because we've not been able to do things like this. Those who study the statistics of churches in North America suggest that as many as 20% of our churches are not going to survive. They're not going to make it. Already in my county, two churches have gone out of business. Two churches have approximately gone out of business since COVID. I've just suggested very difficult times. And then there's the opposition we face. So we're facing a very aggressive form of secularism now in the U.S. An aggressive form of secularism that is attacking us on our faith. Our faith, for example, in such principles as a biblical model of sex and marriage. That's the big one. Where the Bible teaches us that it is disordered to practice any kind of sexuality other than one man and one woman in a committed married relationship for life. That's the biblical standard. That's the natural standard. That's the healthy standard. The first sexual revolution occurred when Christians taught the Roman world to quit practicing all these sexual deviancies that were destroying people's lives. And the second sexual revolution occurred in the 1960s when we undid a thousand years of the first one. And now suddenly we find that secularism is really bullying us on this. If you work for a large corporation, if you work for the school system, if you work for any kind of public agency, you already know the HR departments are telling you that you have to say this, you cannot say that. You cannot take a biblical position. You know this. We have to measure, and I have to measure in my church. We have a pretty big online campus now at our congregation. And every Sunday I have to measure what am I willing to say, knowing that we can be thrown off Facebook any minute for what I say in the sermon. I asked my son before we came in this morning. I said, Jonathan, is this going to be on Facebook or not? Because I have to measure what I'm going to say. Because y'all don't need me getting you thrown off Facebook. Let Calvin do that. But you know it's true. We had a church not far from us in Tennessee preaching sermon that was a lot less radical than the sermons I preached that have now been banned from YouTube because they said the wrong thing about sex and gender. I'm just suggesting that in today's culture we face a level of hostility we just haven't faced before. Let me say this to you. This text teaches us that the only kind of power that is going to get us through the struggles we face is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul prays. I get on my knee, he says, and I pray that the Lord will give you the power of the Holy Spirit in your inner being. So, the power of the Holy Spirit, a word on that. Let's start by saying this. Everything is spiritual. Start there. Because some of us are sort of like those guys in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, when Paul visits, hang on up. My uh, microphone's a little floppy up here. It's taken out of my belt line. <laughs> Paul goes to Ephesus. When he gets there, there are these guys. He asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Do you remember what they said? We haven't even heard that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Oh, my goodness. That might characterize so many churches in America today. We don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. Or if we talk about the Holy Spirit, the only thing we think of is he's a retired author who wrote the Bible and is now on a beach somewhere west of here. And the answer is no, the Holy Spirit is not only here. 
He's alive and he offers you the power you're going to have to have to win this battle. The battle is spiritual. And it cannot be won any way other than spiritually. And if we don't live in, walk by, be filled with, be clothed with, bear the fruit of, be equipped by the Holy Spirit, you're going to lose the battle. It's a Holy Spirit battle. I've said this several times through the years. And the more I think about it, the more I believe it's true. For many of us in many of our churches, if you walk into a Sunday school hallway of adult classrooms, Y'all have that. Y'all pardon me saying y'all. The <laughs> some of you from the South, I know you are. It's probably really reassuring to hear me say y'all. You've got some kind of a Sunday school hallway. We've got to go classroom. For a lot of us, if we were walking down the Sunday school hallway on a Sunday morning, getting ready for a Bible class, and on one side of the hall was a classroom that said, a study of the Holy Spirit. And on the other side of the hallway was a sign that said the Holy Spirit is in here. We would take the study of the Holy Spirit. We would rather go talk about the Holy Spirit than actually live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he's untamable. He's powerful. He's frightening. He brings with him this, as Paul says, this thing that transcends knowledge. That's what he says here. That the love of God that's given to us by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say it's irrational, but he does say it's bigger than your ration. It's bigger than your thoughts. It's bigger than your knowledge. So if everything is spiritual, what does it mean then for us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul prays right here? Well, when you look at the New Testament, you see all sorts of things the Holy Spirit does for us. Can I just, just mention a few of them real quickly? The Holy Spirit gives us the Word of God. You must know that. But in the very same letter in Ephesians chapter 6 now, down towards the end of that beginning of verse 17, when Paul's talking about the equipment that we need in order to fight the Spirit of God, to fight, he says that we must take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So one of the things that we must admit is that the Holy Spirit, not admit, celebrate, is that the Holy Spirit equips us by giving us the written Scriptures. I just don't imagine that I need to really convince you of this. I guess that this congregation has a very high view of the scriptures. If you do, keep it. Don't give it up. Because this is actually a time when people compromise the scriptures. I've said this many times, but here's the deal. When someone starts to read a scripture that's inconsistent with what you see going on around you in North America, who's wrong? North America is. Not the Bible. When you read a scripture, and it's not a scripture that you want to live consistent with, ask yourself this question. What's wrong with me that I don't want to do what God has told me to do? Because the problem is in us. It's not in the Word of God. The Word of God, Psalm 19 says, is perfect. It's perfect. It's flawless. The problem is that we have a rebellious is that we don't want to do what it says. Because we, like that prince of Tyre described in Ezekiel 38, we too have an arrogance about ourselves. I want to do it my way. North Americans want to do everything their way. We have songs about it. We celebrate it. Our biggest word in North America is the word authentic. It's a magical word in North America. That the most important thing you can be is authentic, which basically means selfish. Decide who you want to be and then be that person. I just want to make sure we all know that. None of us is wise enough to know who we ought to be. 
We, we are not smart enough to know who you want to be. I'm, I'm not either. That's why we need God to tell us who we are. How's it working for North America with everybody being who they want to be? How's that working for us? How's that, how, how's that working? I've been, y'all get something out of me for saying this, but, you know, I'm just a visiting preacher. <laughs> how's it working in Portland for everybody doing what they want to do? Down that Portland. How's that working? That's everybody being what they want to be. That's authenticity for you. You know what we need? Less authenticity and more obedience. That's what we need. We need more people who are willing to listen to what the Word of God says and then say, here am I, I'm going to do it. I don't get it. I don't understand it. By the way, make sure you know this. You can read the Bible in 17 foreign languages and you still will not know it any better than the guy who simply obeys it. Obedience is the best teacher. Obedience is the best teacher. Think about your children. Like, how many of you have explained to your children the nature of electricity in a heating element on a stove. None of you. All you said was, don't touch it, it's hot. They, don't, they can't figure out all the electrical stuff. Don't, don't burden them with that. Just tell them, don't touch it. If you touch it, you'll only do it once in your whole life. It's the same with us. We're not smart enough to figure out. Like, we need the Word of God. The Holy Spirit gives us the equipment we need in the Word of God. What else does the Holy Spirit do? I'm, already, I'm, I'm like 25 minutes into the sermon, and I'm not even done with the introduction yet. I felt kind of this is really three sermons, so we're going to sort of cut bait and start fishing, I guess. <laughs> you know what else the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit gives us the power we need. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Paul says to the Thessalonian church, he says, I know that you are authentic believers. I'm using that word. Because he said, when we our message came to you not only in word, but also with conviction, power, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the power we need. Actually, we really need to understand that. We need power from above. That's what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. He prays that you will be strengthened, he said, with power in your inner self. We require divine power. So here's the deal. When we face this aggressive secularism that we're facing here in North America today, you know who your problem is? Your problem is not Joe Biden and it's not Donald Trump. It's not your governor, it's not your mayors. Your problem is not Hollywood. Your problem is not Nashville's Music City. Those are not our issues, and they're not our enemies. Let me just say this clearly. Joe Biden is not your enemy, and Donald Trump is not your enemy. You know who your enemy is? Your enemy is Satan, that's your enemy. And insofar as those who might be against us express their outrage at us, look at them not as the enemy. Look at them as people who are in bondage to the enemy. This is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says that people who don't love the truth get enslaved in bondage. They believe in deceit. He even says God will send them a delusion. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4. Paul says that the God of this world has blinded unbelievers. Look, here's what we want to do. If you think in terms of the Holy Spirit as the source of our strength in this battle, if we think of the message of God as the cure for all of our ills, we no longer look at the people who don't like us or mistreat us or cancel us or whatever. We don't look at them as enemies. We look at them as potential disciples waiting to be released from the enemy. They're in bondage. 
Don't hate them, love them. The, the whole text of Ephesians 3, he said, I want you to get all this Holy Spirit stuff so you can understand what? How deep, how wide, how long, how broad is the love of God. I can't tell you, I don't know how many stories I can tell you from Tanzania, but I do know that there's some stories in Tanzania about some missionaries here. I don't remember who it was that told me this, Jason or somebody. A, a drunk guy, Captain, I'll start the story. Like, you may not even have been there if they didn't have to came back to the U.S. Who was harassing the church while they were trying to have church services. So Captain Greg would come in. And the first initial response, so, you know, that's going to start happening to us. We actually can protest at our church. I'm not, I should be careful how I say this, but you and I have actually had to go into hiding because of opposition. This guy's out harassing the church. You know what they could have done? Called military, police, whoever it is. They got some strong men to come beat this guy up. You know what they did? They realized that he was in bondage. He's not their enemy. The devil's their enemy. This guy's in bondage to the devil. They look at him as the opportunity to witness the gospel. And whoever was telling me the story again, I don't remember who it was, Eric or somebody. The guy eventually was converted to Jesus and became a Think about that. We partner with people across North Africa now. One of those that's been just a, such a luminary for us is a man by the name of Shadake Johnson. He's got a name. His name actually takes about a minute to say it's not a man. The short version is Shadake Johnson. The guy has been in all kinds of trouble. But every time he gets in trouble with the government, with the military, with the Muslims, and in, uh, where he is, he's in West Africa. I don't want to say the name of his country. He always looks at his persecutors as potential disciples. They're never his enemy. The devil's his enemy. You see what happens when you let the Holy Spirit fight the war? All of a sudden you realize, my enemy is not the other political party. My enemy is the devil. I want to win everybody to Jesus. And the more resistance you show me, the more I think I might be bringing to Jesus. That we can look at the world differently when we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. It's a Holy Spirit battle. It's a spiritual war. And it can only be won when we see it filled with the Holy Spirit. This is why we have these remarkable statements about the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter, the 12th they start to preach the gospel in Acts 2, the beginning of the church, Peter says, this Holy Spirit outpouring that you see today is the fulfillment of the book of Joel, really, of centuries of prophecy. And then he says this. He says, God has a vision for your church. I'm, I'm going to start wrapping up this otherwise sprawling sermon. I've just done that while some notes up. I'm like not even down here yet. And we still have all that to go. So I have to end it somewhere. I may just stop. What does Peter say? I remember interviewing a church one time. They come and they wanted to talk about how to develop a vision as a church. And I asked them, what is your vision? They had strategic vision. Their strategic vision was, I'm not making fun of them. They are going to build a carport. This is their strategic vision. This is their vision for their church. They're going to build a carport so people don't get rained on when they come into the church building. They wanted to have more than one person microphone when they sang, and uh, they wanted to shorten the service. And I said, that, that's it. Y'all dreamed that that's the biggest dream you came up with? You want to hear the big dream that they had in Acts chapter 2? Peter says, you will see blood fire and billows of smoke. The sky will be blackened. People will see visions and dreams. 
and you will see the foundations of the earth shake. That's the vision I want for my church. It really is. I want a vision so big that it makes us scared. A vision so big that we can honestly say we're not going to stop, we're not going to rest until every single human being on planet Earth gets an option to say yes to King Jesus before he returns. I don't want any vision any smaller than that. If the building collapses on us and we make disciples, then we lose. If my congregation goes out of business but we've made thousands of disciples, then we lose. Absolutely not. We, won't. we already won. If North Boulevard stopped today, we, through these guys, we planted over 100 churches. We've had 100 babies. If you've got 100 babies and you finally get old and die, you still won. you got your own, I mean, you've got like a whole sports team there. you got a whole league of sports teams when you have that many babies. Since that time, as we continue working, we probably planted another 250 churches. My point is, think about what the Holy Spirit sees and ask for a vision His side. He will give us the power that we need. He wants us to have a vision that includes blood, fire, and billows of smoke. Something huge. He comes to give us power. That's what the text says. He came to give us power. And I'll say this. That's church stuff. Individual stuff. It's only the Holy Spirit that you can defeat the stronghold of your addictions. That's why Alcoholics Anonymous, you know the first few stages, the first few steps, the first few, the first few confessions. We discovered we were powerless over our addictions. And so we handed it over to God. By the way, the most, still to this day, the most successful recovery program in America is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's free. It's successful because it starts with the right assumption. Unless we have divine power, we cannot win this battle. So when Paul writes in the Ephesian church, and he says to the Ephesian church, I pray that you receive the power of the Holy Spirit in your inner person. It's not a metaphor. It, it's not just poetic language. He's literally saying to you, to this congregation, that you say to Speaking to one another in song and in song. 
Thank you. 